This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Robert Steele. Dr. Steele is currently, and has been for several years, the Chief Strategy Officer and Innovation Officer at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. He's had a magnificent career uh, both in running the medical group at the Arkansas Children's Care Network and, and president of that, uh, as well as being at Mercy for a long period of time prior to being at the Arkansas Children's Network. Uh, Dr. Steele, can you take a moment and introduce yourself and just take a moment in your career? Then we'd love to talk about how delivery of healthcare services is changing and what do you see as sort of the, what the long-term it looks like? You bet, Scott. Well, thanks again. It's uh, great to talk to you again, and um, uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, connect with you. Uh, just briefly, um, I'm a pediatrician by background, and I affectionately consider myself an accidental administrator. Um, I, uh, my background has largely been, as you stated, I've been at a number of health systems um, with uh, different roles in, in, in different uh, uh, capacities, currently as the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at Children's Mercy of Kansas City. And um, with that comes uh, a number of eclectic responsibilities uh, ranging from our business development and, uh, and strategy to government affairs, uh, philanthropy, uh, communications and marketing, and, and even our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And Children's Mercy is a magnificent institution. Take a moment. The delivery of services to children, let's focus there. How has that changed over the last year in the pandemic? And what sticks from those changes in the long run versus what goes back to sort of, you know, everyday, what was traditional, in-person, everything? How, how does the delivery of services change and evolve over the next several years? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because it's still in flux. Of course, you know, we had the same experience that most health systems had, and that is when COVID hit, our telemedicine capabilities uh, went through the roof. Uh, we, um, you know, at, at our peak, uh, a little over 80% of all of our outpatient visits were done through telehealth uh, mechanisms. That's settled down to around 22%. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't know really what the right number is, uh, quite frankly, but uh, it's far greater than where it was prior to COVID. And let me ask you a question about that, just very quick before we go further. Are you surprised that it went far as far down as 22%, it, that it's gone that much further down? Or do you just think that people are just used to coming to the doctor in an outpatient way and they prefer that? Because you, you would think that just the sheer convenience of it, but it's just easier. Like I know just recently I took one of my kids to the urgent care, and I guess rather than dealing with telehealth, it was easier just to pick them up and take them to urgent care. What's your sense? Is 22%? I mean, it almost surprised me that it's going down back that far that quickly. What's your sense of that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think there's two uh, factors playing uh, in, in that dynamic. The first one is actually just a denominator uh, issue. You know, we were able to there, – there are a number of outpatient visits that do require um, a, a, an in-person visit just simply for the physical exam. And so with COVID um, – uh, relenting, us getting our vaccines going, and all the all those uh, uh, things, the the denominator has increased. Uh, and we're not quite up to um, pre-COVID levels, but you know it's uh, continuing to to increase. And so I think part of that lowering of the percentage is simply uh, our outpatient visits have have increased. But the second part, which I think is the more interesting dynamic, and maybe specific to pediatrics, and that is that 
we're seeing an increasing desire for that inpatient visit, um, even to the point where we are uh, actively having the conversation with the with the parents that you know this could be done by telehealth. Uh, they're saying no, we really want to come in and be seen. Um, I don't have a you know a good sense as to why that is. I mean, I think you know part of it is going to be um, just pent up demand to be uh, seen in person, much like where well, there's pent up demand going out to the restaurants you know over the last over the last but, but year. But do you think it's partly uh, that people feel like if they're in person? it's a more holistic and safer experience or a more full experience. Is that what drives that? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And, you know, the other thing is just, it's, it's a comfort level. You know, that's the way it always was prior to COVID. I, I do believe that over time we will see um, more and more capabilities and comfort uh, with that. But in this short run, so if you're asking, you know, what, what is, what's happening over the, the next year to two years, that's one of the big issues that we're dealing with is, is trying to figure out what is that right number. And of course, from a patient experience standpoint, we want to deliver that care in a manner that is um, most beneficial and drives that, um, uh, that, that bond between the, the physician and, and patient. And if that's a, an in-person visit, then we're trying to do what we can to facilitate that. So well, let me ask you a question. That, let me ask you another question on that. Yeah. But, but another question along those lines. Is it the same doctor that does the telehealth visit or does the in-person visit, or is it staffing up in two separate ways to fully staff a telehealth center, you know, so you've constantly got people available for it, and then constantly also be staffing an in-person center or are doctors going back and forth, and will they continue to go back and forth between virtual and in-person? Yeah, so that's an interesting dynamic. Um, it, had you asked me that question prior to COVID, I'd say, you know, it's for the most part separate. We're going to find the physicians that really want to do it, and, and we're going to uh, develop them, and so it'll be kind of two separate tracks kind of thing. COVID, it, it, it required that all the physicians, at least in our system, to engage, and they did. So now it's not necessary. Uh, we, we, we have virtually all the physicians that because of their experience over the last year, year and a half of, of needing to include telehealth as part of their practice, they've gotten pretty good at it, gotten a lot more comfortable with it, and in some aspects, uh, overwhelmingly prefer it. So I would say no, it's not a two-track gig. It's that it, it is part of the repertoire for any clinician uh, to deliver that care is to be able to do it both in person and through telehealth means. But if a system wants to be really deep in telehealth, will they have to have dedicated physicians to telehealth at some point? At some point. I mean, I'm, I'm asking you sort of your view in the future. Certainly these telehealth companies have dedicated doctors just doing telehealth, good or bad. Most institutions like yours have people that are doing both. It, 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 at some point will be sort of a core competency. They've got people just very deep in that. So you've got people just dedicated to fielding phones, like, like there were people dedicated to being urgent cares or, or not. That's not or you're too early to tell? It's a, it's a little too early to tell. And it's, of course, that's going to be volume driven. So I, I don't know that you can have a global um, uh, construct for that. I mean, it, it, depending on which subspecialty, for example, you're talking about, there are going to be certain ones in which um, the, it does make sense to, to carve that out, particularly for those uh, chronic disease entities that have very similar um, pathways for therapy. A good example would be like asthma. I mean, lots of volume there, very similar uh, processes. The, the, the 
guidelines and pathways are pretty well uh, established. And could I see that carved out? Yes, I, absolutely. Primary care might be uh, something similar uh, in, in that uh, aspect as well. So I, I think it's a little too early to tell, but I also think it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. And that makes a ton of sense. Thank you. And, and Dr. Steele, another question. How is strategy and competition evolving? How are those things evolving? You're seeing new things in strategy and new things in competition. What are some of your senses of that as a as a magnificent pediatric institution? Yeah, so that's you know the the interesting part to that is you know everyone is kind of doing the postmortem on why Haven quote failed. I personally don't think I wouldn't consider it a failure. We're watching at what CVS, Walmart, and and those folks are doing, and then. You know, I'll give a shout out to uh, uh, Glenn Tolman and Transparent. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of really great innovation that's happening. Um, what, I, what I see is that there is a, a pretty significant bullseye being uh, focused on the traditional primary care. So I would say you know, business competition, whether you are in the primary care business or whether you rely on the referrals of primary care business, that's where that competition is evolving, and it's happening in a lot of different ways through uh, a lot of different, um, what I would say, non-traditional, which will now become traditional, but non-traditional healthcare companies. I, I, there's a lot of eye on that, and and quite honestly, I, I'm concerned that um, the, the the traditional primary care uh, folks that are around the country they don't see this coming, and and will have to. Uh, adapt as as those innovations uh, come through. So as as from from our standpoint, we do see that we're uh, assessing that uh, as to how it is that we address that kind of competition. And there, of course, there's a lot of ways in which those can be addressed. That, that's just a great perspective because you're, you're absolutely right. As I look at the village and these of the world, the talent of the world, and stuff like that, there are a lot of niche players in behavioral and other areas, but so much of it's based at the either the Medicare managed care. Medicaid managed care or just, you know, managed care in general and value-based care around primary care and big patient populations of primary care and really targeting that. And then, as we've known for a long time, if somebody owns a relationship with the primary care, that then generates where all the next level of care goes to, at least some of the direction comes from the primary care physician. Fascinating, fascinating perspective. And, and one final question. There's, today, one, other, there's one other aspect. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, 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 yeah, well, it's just one other aspect that, uh, to that competition that we're seeing evolving, and that is talent competition, that competition for talent. And uh, with COVID and the ability to um, work remotely, um, there's a lot of different thought processes uh, with regard to not just how care is delivered, but also just the back end uh, talent that you bring in, whether that's administrative or Rev cycle, all those things that um, um, we're doing, we're seeing a lot of unique uh, competition for that talent uh, simply based upon geography and where you get it and, and what the requirements are as to whether you have to have that talent on site or not. So, um, and, and we're seeing that on the clinician side on both the academic and non-academic side. So I, I think that's another piece of the evolving puzzle, uh, uh, puzzle to, uh, to competition. It, 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 absolutely, the talent, the competition for talent is probably as, as as acute as ever in our country in so many levels, certainly for doctors, nurses, clinicians, and so forth. One last question. What does Children's Mercy have to be great at to continue to be impactful and have the impact that it's had the last decade or so? 
what does it have to be graded over the next 10 years and into the future? Yeah, so you know, it always comes back down to the basics, and that is delivering high-quality care and giving the best patient experience. And, you know, it, that almost sounds Pollyanna, but it, it really, that is what, you know, that's the reason why we're in business. That's the reason why we're here. And ultimately, if your eye is focused on delivering that high-quality care and you're delivering that best patient experience, then um, that gives you that uh, advantage and, and um uh, allows you to survive, you know, to the to the next year. The the question is is how that's being delivered and the evolving reimbursement issues, the evolving technology, uh, and uh, capabilities, so that we can continue to continually improve. So I would say that is that's one of the the, the biggest things that we have to always continue to have our eye on. The second part, uh, quite frankly, is financial resiliency. I mean, with all the things that are changing in healthcare, um, the one thing that we can be certain of is that there isn't more money, um, and and that we've got to be able to, as a healthcare industry, be able to find those innovative ways of delivering that care, but doing it in an, in an affordable manner, and that as those disruptor disruptors occur, whether that's through the private sector or through government payers, um, health systems have got to have the financial resiliency to be able to withstand the headwinds that are clearly coming down the road are, are already uh, here. And so I would say that's that's really where our focus is. It's always going to be on the patient family first and foremost, but then operationally, we've got to be able to uh, have that financial resiliency to, to bounce around as things change. But I think the point of in this crazily disruptive world, if health systems come back to in practices as well, so how do I make sure we are doing magnificent for patient care and patient experience and really taking care of patients and focus on that mission? You, yes, you have to be mindful of the finances, but a lot of things can take care of themselves if really the first foot and the first priority is taking care of patients. That's exactly right. I mean, it, it, as, whether we're talking about payer incentives or we're just simply talking about whether patients choose you for their provider, it all comes down to that high quality care. You've got to be able to not just deliver it, but prove that you've actually achieved it. Same with patient experience. And if you do that, then um, you'll be successful. Dr. Steele, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with you. Always a pleasure and a great institution. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Scott.